This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. One book or another has sought to take the measure of the Bush administration's aggressive foreign policy. In their search for precedence, they invoke the Roman and British empires, as well as post-war reconstructions of Germany and Japan. Yet they consistently ignore the one place where the United States had its most formative imperial experience, Latin America. In his new book, Empire's Workshop, Greg Grandin explains how that area of the world has functioned as a laboratory for American extraterritorial role. From Thomas Jefferson's aspirations for an empire of liberty in Cuba and Spanish Florida to Ronald Reagan's support for brutally oppressive but U.S.-friendly regimes in Central America. Grandin teaches Latin American history at New York University and is the author of two previous books, The Last Colonial Massacre and the award-winning The Blood of Guatemala. Greg Grandin, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Oh, good. It's a beautiful day here in New York. Oh, very good. That's nice to hear. It's a nice day out in California, too. Something must be in the air. (laughs) So so give us some background on this. How and and why did the U.S. get involved in Latin America in the first place? What What was the impetus there? Oh, well, it goes back centuries. I mean, since the United States, the United States has had aspirations, expansion into Latin America, and with plans to annex Cuba and the Dominican Republic. And don't forget, we took a third of Mexico in the mid-19th century, and Florida was part of Spanish America. The United States, um, since, its, since its inception, had an expansionist impulse, and Latin America, for its proximity, was clearly the place to, to execute that expansion. What was Go ahead, Mike. No, no, I was just going to say, in every school, every school kid would know about the Monroe Doctrine. At least they know a little bit about it, and that, that's certainly a part of our expansion uh, plans. Right, right. The Monroe Doctrine by James Monroe, the president, 1823, when he declared Latin America off-limits to European empires. It took a while before it could actually be enforced, but it's been a guiding principle, I think, in one president after another. And, and certainly the principle of the Monroe Doctrine could be found in the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, which so, seeks to kind of um, turn Latin America into a, into a U.S. province, an economic province and in an increasingly globalized economy. Now, was there a kickoff point, you'd say, where we really dug into Latin America? Would you, would you call that the, uh, the 1980s with uh, Reagan, or, or would you go back to the United Fruit Company for that? Oh, I'd go back, I'd guess, to 18, 1898 and the okay. Spanish-American War, in which we, which we annexed Puerto Rico and, and, and took over and administered Cuba and, and, um, and also took over the Philippines and got tied down in the counterinsurgent war in the Philippines. And I think that was the first real, and from, from 1890 and from 1898, for the next couple of decades, we were engaged in one invasion and occupation and guerrilla war after another in Nicaragua and Panama and Haiti and Dominican Republic. But then it was in the 1980s, and that's, that is what the book principally focuses on. It's so looking at Ronald Reagan's Central American policy 
if you remember, that was a support for death squad states, anti-communist states in Nicaragua, in uh, Guatemala, and El Salvador, and anti-communist insurgencies, uh, the Contras in Nicaragua. I look at Central America as the kind of crucible, the, the place where all of the different constituencies that make up the, the modern conservative governing coalition, the coalition that stands behind George Bush, has first coming together. You had the neoconservatives, secular neoconservatives, uh, free market uh, neoliberals, the evangelical fundamentalists, and the militarists. It's the first, first place where they first came together and sought to restore the power of the imperial presidency after the setbacks of the 1970s, after getting kicked out of Southeast Asia in Vietnam in the 1970s, after Watergate, the Church Committee. Central America really was the place that, that Reagan gave to movement conservatives that brought him to power. He, even as he acted with moderation in other aspects and other parts of the world, negotiating with Gorbachev, for instance, and pulling out of Lebanon, he let the, the movement cadres, conservative cadres, run wild in Central America because it was an area of very little import. But all of those, in some ways, this is where the coalition that stands behind Bush's preemptive uh, warfare doctrine, which led us to war in Iraq and the disaster that's now, go- now going on in the Middle East, was first tried out. It, it, in, a, in a manner of speaking, what the, the, the period you're describing, as, as I remember it, was that uh, we're talking post-Watergate, we're talking was Jimmy Carter was president, and there was a pervasive feeling among the establishment um, in the government and outside the government that the United States was losing its grip, its imperial grip uh, on places around the world, and that this was, in, in a manner of speaking, a, a way of reestablishing the United States as, as uh, its, uh, and in an area where it was is more or less a slam dunk for us to go in and reestablish. Uh, right. Uh, well, uh, Reagan came to power promising to restore America's power and right. pride in the world, right? So he, he, there was this sense, the crisis of the 1970s was multidimensional. It right. was military in, 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 in the sense that a poorly armed peasant insurgency in Southeast Asia defeated the world's most technologically advanced military and kicked them out of Southeast Asia. It was politically Watergate crisis, a kind of crisis of authority, a political authority. It was economic, the, 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 the economic crisis, the depression of the 1970s, recession of the 1970s was one of the largest, longest contractions since the Great Depression. But then there was also a moral crisis, is, is what I try to look at. And, and, and one of the things that the New Right came to power is they pledged to kind of re- restore not just American military power in the world, but but the the moral justification for that power. So so when you think of the the Bush doctrine, when you think yeah. of the justification, what's unique about about Iraq is not just that the U- U.S. Um, invaded a country preemptively. It's the it's the it's the I, the ideological justification for that is the Republicans justifying it in, in idealist terms. Mm-hmm. The embrace of human rights, at least rhetorically, the embrace of the notion of nation building and democratization that we're not there just to protect our national interests, but to bring freedom to the rest of the world. And it was this kind of combination of militarism and idealism, and idealism in quotation marks, yeah. that the Republicans embraced for the first time in Central America, where, where it wasn't just enough to support anti-communist uh, murderers, torturers, and rapists in Nicaragua. It, Reagan had to justify that support in ever more idealist terms, and hence the Contras were converted into, if you remember, the moral equivalent of, the of, of our founding fathers. Yeah. Exactly. So it was that 
kind of what what I think neoconservatives like to call hard Wilsonianism. It was that 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 idealist, that kind of soaring rhetoric was usually it was long the property of the Democratic Party from Wilson to Kennedy, John Kennedy. And it, but it wasn't, and the Republicans kind of shunned that kind of soaring rhetoric. And it wasn't until Central America that they, they, they fully embraced it. And part of it was this kind of responding to the crisis of the 1970s that, that we talked about. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Greg Grandin, and he's the author of Empire's Workshop. And just real quickly to touch on the idea that, uh, you know, that somehow the Democrats were, uh, were anti-imperial, <laughs> Uh, did go back to uh, when Kennedy ran for president in 1960, much of his campaign, certainly the foreign policy uh, side of it, was based on the idea that the United States was experiencing a missile gap. That the Soviets were, in fact, surging ahead of us in, in uh, nuclear weaponry, and we were losing, again, once again, we were losing our, our, uh, our grip on, on uh, the world and that we had to reestablish ourselves as a, as a predominant military power. Yes, no, of course, the Democrats, like, that's, that's what, that's, yeah. as I just mentioned, yeah. it was, it was the, the Democrats who tended to justify U.S. expansion in idealist terms, and yeah. certainly Kennedy ran yeah. as the committed, the more committed militarist compared to Nixon, and he ran as, uh, on Nixon's, he, out, he outflanked Nixon on the right, yeah. um, which, is, which is interesting. But the Democratic Party, the, the, the Vietnam did open up a, a breach within the Democratic Party that allowed some anti-imperialist or anti-militarist currents to flow into it. And I think you saw a, little, a lot of that within the, the confusion of the Carter administration, where on, you know, it, it would lurch back and forth from, from trying to tone down the ideological fervor of the Cold War. Carter saying that um, America has an inordinate fear of communism, trying to yeah. tone that down at the same time, um, embracing, uh, beginning to beginning to um, increase the mili- the kind of prefiguring the military buildup that would begin under Reagan, the, uh, Vietnam paralyzed the Democratic Party, whereas the Republican Party, or not so much the Republican Party, but the new base, had galvanized the, the, the new the, the the new right, the base of the new right. And what happened with Central America is that there was a fusion between the the the, the party and its base. Now, yeah. if, you, if you remember. Twenty years ago, and this year in November was is the breaking of the Iran Contra story. In November of 1986, a story appeared in the press of a of an illegal arms deal brokered by Oliver North and the National Security Council, um, selling high tech missiles to Iran and then using the money to um, to fund the Contras in Nicaragua. Now, unlike Vietnam, and this is like um, like Watergate, that that story uh, eventually evolved into a full scale constitutional crisis. But where Watergate yielded a kind of broad consensus about the dangers of executive power, Iran Contra kind of petered out with the end of the Cold War, U.S. victory in the Cold War, and Reagan leaving office with, with high high popular opinion polls, and. And there was no real closure with the Iran-Contra. And in some ways, that's because Iran-Contra continues to this yeah, day. Yeah. All of George's, George Bush's abuses of power, the, the wiretaps, the, the, the torture in the, in the name of freedom, the, the creation of an interagency war party in order, to, in order to sell an aggressive war, the manipulation of do, uh, domestic um, uh, public, uh, public opinion, all of those things have their roots in Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra, in some ways, was the new right's first sustained attempt to, to rehabilitate the imperial presidency. And one of the things that it also did was that it, it forced the Republican Party, it forced the White House to rely on its 
social base on 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 evangelical Christians, on mercenaries, on on evangelical finances to, in order to in order to support the Contras. So it, it kind of it kind of um, it taught the Republicans how to wage an aggressive foreign policy off the books and 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 brought together all of these different currents within the new right. And then you see the the uh, extension of that uh, of that idea with the uh, the candidacy of Pat Robertson in 1988 after Reagan left. You see that they had they they knew that they could uh, the, the new right and in this conservative evangelical base had enough power to try and put somebody in the White House. And they yeah, the, yeah. The, and, you know, it, and, and this coalition comes apart a little bit under Bush 1, yeah. who, who was seen as too Atlanticist, and certainly under Clinton. But then after 9-11, yeah. that alliance, especially between neoconservatives and evangelical fundamentalists, really come back with a, with a vengeance, and, 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 it, and it accounts for this kind of remoralization of American militarism. I mean, there's a... It's no coincidence, as, as they say, that so many of, of Iran-Contra and Central, old Central American hands have been recycled in the Bush administration. I, wanna, I, wanna, I do want to get to that, but I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Greg Grant in his book, Empire's Workshop. And, and I do want to talk about the Elliott Abrams, the Otto Reichs, the John Negropontes, and how they were involved in what we did in Central America. But I, I, uh, I feel like we need to talk more about how, with your book, you talk about how— this has been America's essentially workshop for bringing democracy and uh, infusing it with a sort of democratic capitalist uh, base, and yet we have done practically the opposite in Central and South America. Yeah, we not? Yeah. So, so th- if, if this is a working example of what we intended or intend to bring to the Middle East, it's, it's not a pretty picture. So no, let's... it's not a pretty picture at all. In some ways, I think that the, the new right or the conservative policy intellectuals have been seduced by their own rhetoric that that if you actually take a look at i mean let's take a look at central america here's a region that falls squarely within the u.s's sphere of influence in which the people admittedly share many of the values that the united states claims to defend and and these are these are these are actually admirable values democracy and pluralism and and freedom um and yet when you look at Central America, it, it is a complete disaster. So if this is the this and and then yet you have you have Dick Cheney in the 2004 vice presidential debates when they asked him what he hoped to accomplish in Iraq, instead of pointing to post World War II Japan or post World War II Germany, he he identified he held up El Salvador as the model of what he, of what his administration hoped to accomplish in Iraq. Now, if you take a look at El Salvador, uh, economic inequality is staggering. Yeah. Not not so much political violence these days, but just common crime is, is off the charts. People are desperate, and, and 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 if this is the model, and if this is the best the U.S. can do in an area where it has the overwhelming an overwhelming amount of influence, then the odds are of of, of it telegraphing democracy at the barrel of a gun to Iraq are pretty minimal. I think. Well, I think we have to take him at his word. I, I mean, you know, I I I. I don't think these are rhetorical slips of the tongue. I do think that in some, no, exactly. in some ways and, and, that these are what they intended to do. A few months after the election, as yeah. things started to go yeah. really wrong in Iraq, you started to hear about another analogy with El Salvador, and that was the Salvador option, the, yeah. the reliance on paramilitary thugs yes, or yes, death squads yeah. in order to keep 
keep order, right? So there, there, there is this kind of way in which else the, the return of the repressed kind of thing where it keeps, keeps popping up into the political consciousness. And I think we do have to take about his word that if this is what they, this is what they, they, they believe they could accomplish well, in, in the and, Middle East. And look at the disparity in rich and poor in this country. It continues to grow. And I, I want to go back just for a second. I want to go back to the Iran-Contra thing in, or, in, in order to kind of pull in all the things we're talking about, because there's there's two sides of the triangle. We talk about Washington's involvement, and we talk about what happened in Central America. But we often forget that the intent uh, of of the of the deal was not to release hostages, because the hostages were gone um, uh, for much of the for for the entire time that we're talking about Iran Contra. It was really, uh, as it's been put to me, it was really an attempt on the part of the United States to undermine the Iranian government in order to install, uh, reinstall a government that was friendlier to the United States. And here we are again, 20 years later, and we see echoes of, of that same sort of, uh, that same sort of an attempt. Right. I mean, we're constantly cleaning up after the mess that we ourselves made, you know, a few decades earlier. I mean, the same thing happened in Guatemala, yeah. you know, certainly in Iran. I mean, our history in Iran goes back at least to 1953 when we overthrew Mossadegh, the prime democratic elected prime minister, secularist, a modernizer, and, and installed the Shah. And, and yet that history just gets erased. But it continues to echo, and and, and let's and let's go to Central America. In 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 one of your earlier books, you talk about one of the defining moments in Central American history was the uh, the, the overthrow of uh, of Arbenz in Guatemala, and how that has reverberated for so many years. Yes, well, in 1954, it was the CIA. The C, the, there was a democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz, who was carrying out kind of FDR-like New Deal reforms, land reform, banking reform, Social Security, labor reform. But it was the Cold War. It was 1950, early 1950s. It was the beginning of the Cold War, and, and the United States, the State Department, and the Pentagon had already signaled that it wasn't going to accept democracy at the expense of stability, that stability trumped democracy. And so the CIA launched its first Latin American Cold War operation. See, the agency had already overthrown Mossadegh the year before in 1953, but Guatemala really was the most extensive CIA operation to date. It really it drew on all facets of U.S. power, not just military and diplomatic and economic, but it used a lot of psychological destabilization programs in order to create dissent and confusion within. It was a year-long campaign within the within Guatemala leading up to the overthrow, and it. It had the effect of radicalizing a whole generation of of Latin American nationalists and reformers. Che, che Guevara was in in Guatemala at the end of that famous motorcycle diary tour. He had mm-hmm. wound up in Guatemala as a as a socially conscious doctor administering to to Guatemala's agrarian poor, rural poor, the peasantry, and he witnessed firsthand the effect of um, U.S. intervention. And so it was a kind of a turning point in which reformers and nationalists no longer held up the United States as a model for democracy, as they had pretty much since from FDR forward. There was a lot of goodwill coming out of the good neighbor policy and the popular front policy of the of the commun- of the of the Soviet Union. And and the United States for, throughout the 30s and 40s was held up as a model for democracy and, and development. But after 1954, a whole new younger generation, such as Che and Fidel Castro, looked the United States no longer as a model but an obstacle to be overcome. And so subsequently, after the Cuban Revolution, Che would 
would would return to Guatemala rhetorically and, and, and taunt the U.S. that Cuba will not be Guatemala as a way to justify the increasing militancy of the of the Cuban Revolution. Wasn't that one of the things that Castro said in his first speech uh, after he took power? Wasn't it that he the United that Cuba would never be a Guatemala or I don't know if it was his first speech, but he he did cite he did oh. he also did cite cite Guatemala. But what is most more powerful is that Che was actually in Guatemala. He yeah. witnessed first day had he fled into the Argent, to the Argentine embassy, and then he made his way to Mexico in exile, and that's where he met Fidel. Okay. Well, we're speaking with Greg Grandin, and he's the author of Empire's Workshop. And um, let's talk a little bit about where we are today. There's been an awful lot of discussion of late about what's going on in South America with uh, with Venezuela and there's been some there's been a shift in in the uh, politics of the leadership in South in South America. Let, let's talk about that and how that's beginning to have a bearing on what's going on in Washington. Yes, well it's been there's been uh, since starting with Chavez's 1998 election. Mm-hmm. His first election there's been a marked shift to the left in, in, in Latin America. There's Lula in Brazil and Uruguay and Chile to some degree and Argentina and Bolivia have all turned left and Mexico's election is, is coming in May and uh, in July, I'm sorry, and it looks like um, Lopez Obrador kind of sent the leftist candidate is up in the polls again after a little bit of a setback and it seems like he'll, he'll probably win. So, yes, there's been this sharp left turn at, and to understand it, part of it has to do with with Bush and and his and his and his kind of a preemptive militarism. There's been a rejection of that and the U.S.'s role in in, in trying to over, overthrow ha- Chavez in 2002. But I think the larger cause of this turn left is the just the economic devastation that has been visited on on Latin America over the last 20 years in the guise of what Latin Americans like to call neoliberalism. What what we often hear call free trade or or radical free trade or you know in yeah. which in which the US um, through the treasury department through wall street and through its allied institutions such as the international monetary fund um, insisted that latin america embark on a series of what they call structural reforms privatization of state industries opening up Latin American nations to U.S. commodities and, and U.S. Um, capital with little restrictions, uh, reducing social services, social spending on health care and education, weakening labor law, uh, kind of rolling back of the state. And more wh- or less what we've, along the lines of what we've seen here in the U.S. Since, since the Reagan era. And this has just been absolutely devastating. I'll just give you some statistics. Between 1960 and 1980, before the implementation of neoliberalism, per capita income in Latin America rose over the course of that period 82 percent. I mean, just, a, just pretty strong growth. And if Mexico had continued, it would have a living standard comparable to Spain or maybe Italy. Over the last 20 years, with the with the implementation of neoliberalism, um, growth has been 10 percent, not 10 percent per year, 10 percent total. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 11% of Latin Americans were des- destitute in, in, at the end of the 1960s. Um, today, that's 40%. Oh 213 million Latin Americans living on less than $2 a day. That's 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 uh, amazing. Uh, and and this and it also goes to one of the one of the ways that we've really impacted uh, Latin America has been in agriculture because of our huge subsidies. We've been able to 
uh, we have essentially wiped out much of the uh, much of the uh, agricultural industry in, in that part of the world. Yeah, when, again, when we should always when we talk about free trade, we should always have quotation marks around it yeah. because it's not very free. The U.S. has refused to eliminate its agricultural subsidies, while at the same time we're demanding that Latin, we demand and successfully demand that Latin America open up its markets to U.S. agricultural goods. And you saw part of what what has happened with Mexico was just the devastation of the of the peasant sector of the agrarian sector and little commented on is, is in all of the debates about immigration and reform right. and, and whatnot is that in 2008 the final provision of NAFTA is set to go into place which completely um, requires that 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 the Mexican government remove all all subsidies to Mexican corn and bean producers while while at the same time lowering doing away with all tariffs so while we subsidize our... While we continue to subsidize agro-industry. So right? wipes well, NAFTA does nothing yeah. to, to limit those subsidies. So this will just... I mean, the the Pew Center estimates that 500,000 Mexicans migrate undocked without, without papers to the U.S. every year. That number is just going to skyrocket after 2008. Now, there's just been a complete devastation of the of the agricultural sector, not just in Mexico, but in Central America, leading to swollen cities and, and migration north. It's, I mean, to frame this correctly, I mean, people cannot afford to grow. They can't sell the, the, the stuff that they grow. Right. And so, right, therefore, exactly. they, it, it's a losing proposition to grow food, and that, that's just mind-boggling to me. We're running very short on time, I, and I, I did want to quickly, quickly to sort of also put a spotlight on, just so people understand the same people that were doing this in the Reagan administration are, are really at work here in, in the Bush administration. And we spoke briefly about Elliot Abrams, Otto Reich, John Negroponte. I know there are others, but those three you, you, you bring up. Why don't we give some people a very quick idea of how they're involved today? Well, John Negroponte in the 1980s was the U.S. ambassador to Honduras, and he oversaw the Contra War. Um, and he, he uh, and the slaughter he was, of thousands of civilians. <laughs> right, and he was also he was also charged with covering up death squad atrocities right. in, in in Honduras. And today we we saw him recycled as an ambassador to Iraq, and now he presides over the combined intelligence apparatus of the U.S. Elliot Abrams was in the State Department in the 1980s. He was one of the key kind of first generation neoconservatives who rehabilitated, who allowed the Republicans to co-opt the language of human rights, and now we find him. Today, in the National Security Council, uh, charged with organizing or leading uh, Bush's global democratic uh, revolution, Otto Reich. Otto Reich in the 1980s was the head of the. Um, he's a Cuban emigre, but he was the head of the Office of Public Diplomacy, which was this massive media disinformation campaign uh, put into place in 1983, part of Iran Contra, investigated by the Iran Contra, uh, that the the numerous inquiries into Iran Contra, um, in which in which who flooded the media with this information uh, today up until recently he was in the State Department he was the US envoy to Latin America um, the, the list goes on yeah, and yeah. on and on but unfortunately <laughs> we have run completely out of time I'm sorry if, uh, but uh, this is we're, we've been speaking with Greg Grandin the book is Empire's Workshop uh, Latin America the United States and the Rise of New Imperialism thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals and good luck to you thanks for having right, me here, take care To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. 
Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. 